This week on Up in the Blue Seats, Larry Brooks and I team up for an interview with the Rangers GM that helped put together the 1994 Stanley Cup championship team, Neil Smith. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats Podcast, a New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where you can rate the show five stars and write a nice review, or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Ron and Larry Brooks team up again for an interview this week with the guy, the GM, that led them to the Stanley Cup Championship in 1994, Neil Smith. Speaking of Ron, here he is, the star of the show, number 10, Ron Duguay. Welcome, everyone. And uh, I'm excited today about today's show. I want to go back. I want to go back to 94. Yes, 94. Special year if you're a Ranger fan. The Rangers win the Stanley Cup. And one of the creators, the architect of that Stanley Cup, is a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, Neil Smith. Back in the 80s when I was playing for the Rangers, he was working with the New York Islanders. He was a scout there. And then I get traded to Detroit. Sure enough, he follows me to Detroit, where he became part of management. So we've known each other for a long time, but there are things that I have not asked him that I look forward to asking him about the creation of that team in 94. The players. Why certain players? Why Mike Keenan? A lot of stuff. And I know there's a lot of listeners who have questions for him also. So today, all those questions will be answered when we talk to Neil Smith. Yes, 94, the year of the Stanley Cup. We have with us a longtime friend of mine, going back to the 80s, was a general manager from 89 to 2000, Neil Smith. Neil, welcome to the show. Oh, it's an honor to be on with you guys. And thinking about coming on with you, Ron, I, I thought about the fact that you were a star with the Rangers when I first started my scouting career with the Islanders. And uh, it's amazing how long that uh, that has been. I started in 1980 with the Islanders, and you were uh, in your prime, I think, or just getting into your prime with the Rangers. Now that you've said that, because I didn't want to get right into 94, your creation of that team, I thought, Let's go back to Neil Smith, who Neil Smith was, how he became this genius of a man that put that team together. And in 74, you were drafted by the Islanders. You go to training camp. You spend a few years in the minors where you end up playing on the same team as my brother in the Hampton Aces. But past all that, you decided that I wanted to leave the game and get back to the Islander organization. And you hooked up with Jim Devolano, Al Arbor. So let's go back to that time where you decided to make that move. And what did Jim Devolano mean to you? What did you learn from him that got you to the place where you are today? Well, it's an interesting story that I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest on, because uh, it's uh, it's sort of bizarre. I was I was just going to leave the minor leagues, and I had a green card, and I was going to leave the minor leagues and and go do sales or something. And I ran into a fella while I was teaching Buffalo Sabres hockey school who was an Islander season ticket holder. And it, I, I ended up talking to him. He asked me to come to New York and interview for his company. And when I went there, I started working for his company as a low-level person in sales. And uh, I, I, I really didn't, I missed hockey so bad. And I, Jimmy Devolano had given, gotten me a press pass to go to the Nassau Coliseum and to the games because I was living on Long Island with a family. And so I was going to the games and I got to know Jill Mee, the PR person. And they were playing uh, the, the Rangers uh, in Madison Square Garden. And I asked Jill Mee, 
could I go to a game at the garden? Could I go to that game in the garden? Could you get me a press pass? So she put me on the press list, and I was at that game, you know, nervous as hell because who the hell was I up there? But I had on my suit and tie. At that game, a guy in the blue seat where the press box, as you guys know, was right in front of the blue seats. And there was a guy there that I remember he used to chomp on a cigar the whole night. And he just screamed, you know, give give the visiting players who were sitting out for the game and the visiting uh, assistant coaches and that, just give them hell all during the game. And of course, nobody more than the Islanders. Lauren Henning was up there sitting just a few seats from me, who was Al Arbor's assistant. And it ended up being quite a bad argument between those guys. And the security had to come up and usher Lauren Henning down to the to the dressing room. And that's when the light bulb went off that, you know, geez, the Islanders can't even come and watch Ranger games because the, it's such a, a turbulent uh, uh, atmosphere. And, it, and if you're recognized, I mean, the fans, the Ranger fans are just, you know, you know want to uh, just beat you to death. So I said to Jimmy Devolano, I said, do you think that they um, would want anybody to go to all the Ranger games and report on the teams that they're playing against? Because usually the Islanders got them the next night or vice versa. And so Jimmy Devolano asked Al Arbor and Al Arbor suddenly calls me. And now Ron and Larry, I'm scared to death. I got Al Arbor on the phone with me. I mean, this iconic coach who's just won the Stanley Cup the year before. He says, I'll meet you at Burger King on Long Island. So I go to Burger King and he gives me all these forms to fill out and stuff. So I start going to all the Ranger games. I have a press pass and I'm watching all the Ranger games. Al obviously must have liked my reports. And then he started sending me to Hartford and Boston and Washington. Washington and other places. I wasn't getting paid by the Islanders. They were just giving me my expense money back. So I was doing a little bit of cheating there by taking a, when I was saying I was taking a cab, I was jumping in the subway and stuff like that. Just so I could make ends meet. I quit the job that I had because I had enough money saved. And then I taught the Islander hockey school that summer. That was be the summer of 1981. And then they won the Stanley Cup against Minnesota. And the next year, 81-82, I got a full-time job with the Islanders doing pro games. And I made $10,000 doing that. And again, taught their hockey school. And then Jimmy took me with him to Detroit, where I moved up through the management ranks there over the years I was in Detroit. Now, that's as quick as a version as I could possibly give you. But that's how I got all the way through Detroit to the chief scout of Detroit in 1989. Phil gets fired and they interview me. And what's interesting, I don't know if Larry would remember this reporting. He wasn't reporting the Rangers back then, but they didn't. They interviewed uh, a number of higher profile people in the summer of 89. For example, Scotty Bowen. Bowman uh, was interviewed. Uh, they tried to get Bob Johnson. They interviewed Herb Brooks, several people to be the general manager, and they thought they were getting close to getting Scotty Bowman, but he didn't want it. You have to remember that back in those days, it was different than when I was there. It was, it was Gulf and Western and very corporate and not really, the Rangers didn't really have a good reputation from an ownership management standpoint as far as a working environment. And a lot of people just didn't want it. Well, Jack Diller had been impressed by me, obviously, in the few interviews that we'd done and decided suddenly like a month after they started this process with me that he that he'd hire me so he called me I I went into New York we had the press conference and you know he got grilled most of the press conference it's funny because it reminds me of today's political press conferences most of that press conference in 1989 when Jack Diller was introducing me was the press jumping on Jack Diller he had a very adversarial relationship with the press and I was basically off to the side like this little boy standing waiting like uh, like I'm Dr. Fauci or something while they were just pouncing all over Jack Diller. So, you know, that one of the first questions that they asked me was, and I, of course, I was new to New York except for the scouting. So I, I had been with Detroit for seven years. And one of the first questions I get is, well, when do you think you can win the Stanley Cup? This is the 50th year without it. And I'm like, Stanley Cup? I, I, I just want to make the playoffs. <laughs> can we? 
what do you mean Stanley Cup? And so uh, you knew right from the press conference on that the pressure was on about the Stanley Cup and how long it had been. So you're walking into something with a with a lot of baggage. But it, it was a very exciting time, although I was, I got to tell you, I was scared to death. I actually was working for the Devils then, so I wasn't one of the guys who was pouncing on Jack Diller, although I'm sure I would have if I if I'd had the opportunity. So you come from what's interesting to me about your your tenure as a GM, certainly with the Rangers, is you you came from a a background of scouting, player development, and yet you really made your mark by making massive, you know, spectacular blockbuster trades. You know, some of the younger guys were already in place when you came. Leachy had been, Brian Leach had been drafted, Mike Richter had been drafted. But you went about drafting players and then using them as assets as much as people to play for the New York Rangers. And I'm wondering, as as a draft guy, as a scout, how, how you arrived at that philosophy? That's a very good question uh, that I, I think you'll understand totally when I say it, and I think you might already know it, but it's good for the listeners. I treasure nothing more still to this day than drafting players and developing players and, and seeing them end up. The You see something in them when they're young and they fulfill that promise and or their own destiny. There's nothing more fulfilling than that. And let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Adam Graves, who I drafted for Detroit, ended up trading for him to come to New York, and he ends up being an iconic player. Like, that's, you, you can't do anything better than that, in my view, as a talent evaluator and a, a, a person trying to recognize talent. Nicholas Lidstrom, of course, is a, is a phenomenal example of, you know, nobody knew about Nicholas Lidstrom. I drafted him for Detroit, and then he ends up being way better than I ever thought he would be, but you still, you see something. And that's that's an amazing feeling when you do that as a, as a talent guy, to see something in someone and see it come out is, is really wonderful. But what happened, Larry and Ron, was that's a good philosophy when you're in Detroit and it works and you can you get they give you the time to do that stuff as is evidenced by all the players that Detroit drafted and ended their careers almost as Red Wings or spent 10 years as Red Wings but what you find out when you're in New York is the the way that you might be successful in trying to win a championship there is everything you you have at your disposal has to be used as currency to make a make a, a, a championship caliber level team because if you don't do that and you you try to do it the development way. They're not going to wait for you to do it. You're not going to get it done. Maybe I'm talking old era now and not today's era, Larry. But back then, at least, they, they're not going to wait for you to, you know, draft the guy, develop him, wait for him to be, you know, then do it again and do it again. It, it's just not going to happen in New York. So then you, you've got to find a way to use what you can acquire as, as I call it, currency through the entry draft and use it to get players to put in place to win and and not wait for the players that you drafted to help you win but to use them to get players to help you win but not in you know before i got there they made trades that and i I don't want to criticize any manager for sure but there was trades that were made when the wrong way like they traded rick middleton for ken hodge for example just to you know uh, open up a wound or they trade for like blaine stoughton or they trade for marcel dion or they trade for and and the players that they were trading for were so far past their prime that they couldn't help the team win at that point in their career. It, it, it wasn't possible. 
So you had to try to find ways to get players that could still help you win. It still had time left in them, like Messier and that. Let's face it, the reason in my era why I was able to do that with uh, with a lot of players was because of the economic disparity between teams in the league. Uh, you know, you had Peter Pocklington owning Edmonton and Edmonton bleeding money and, and not doing well in other businesses that he was involved in. And now suddenly comes along Bruce McNall and, and basically buys Gretzky from him and then pays Gretzky a lot of money. Well, then Mark Messier wants to get out of Edmonton so that he can get his money because he's not going to get it in Edmonton. They can't pay him. And so now Messier becomes available on the market. And and on my own behalf, I will say that he was offered to everybody in the league. The, the fact that the, 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 the myth that he was only offered to us and nobody else is, is, is BS. He was offered to every favor would have taken the deal from anybody that would have given it to him. But I was able through our ownership at the time, Stanley Jaffe and so on, to come up with the deal that, that would make that deal happen to get Mets. But Mets wouldn't have been available had there not been the economic disparity in the league between the Canadian team like Edmonton and, and the New York Rangers. So I had the benefit of a lot of different things. I had the benefit of having some good young players that other teams would want. I had the economic advantage. I guess I had this, the, the foresight to know that like a lot of people like Walter McPeak, <laughs> who criticized the Messier deal, and I love Walter, by the way, that Messier wasn't finished when I was trading for him. He was far from finished. So it wasn't another Blaine Stoughton trade or Marcel Dion trade. It was a, a trade for you know, the foreseeable future. Former Rangers general manager Neil Smith on with us here and Jake Brown here, Neil, fielding questions from Twitter. And, you know, people were very thankful for the 94 Cup, of course, but obviously there's going to be critics. And one from Blue Shirt 4 on Twitter, he asked, what trades do you regret? He said, I would think the Zuboff trade. And the second part is, does he feel bad that Mike Gartner didn't get to be part of the Cup run? Well, I'll answer the second part first. That's easy. Yes, I do feel bad about that. And I, I think I've always made that clear to everyone that I didn't really want to uh, trade Mike Gartner uh, at the deadline. Larry, I think, knows that. I know you weren't covering us. Mark Everson was, but I didn't like doing that, but I had to do it because of our coach who just didn't want Gartner. So, you know, I had to I had to find a way to take away all the excuses, and, and that's why we did that. It's surprisingly, too, for your, uh, for your Twitter person, I don't regret the Zuboff trade, and I'll tell you why. Zuboff turned in to be a Hall of Famer. He was fantastic with us in that first year in the Stanley Cup year and the second year when we it was a it was a lockout year and uh, we got knocked out by Philadelphia in the second round and four straight and Colin Campbell was the coach and we talked afterwards and Zuby quite honestly was scared to death and and what's amazing is is that when I called Sergey to congratulate him about going in the Hall of Fame and I said to him you know I've taken a lot of crap for trading you Sergey and I said I, I love the fact that I drafted you I was the first American person you ever spoke to because I went over there and met him in Russia. I said, but you know, I'm glad to see you've gone on and have such a great career. And he said, well, Neil, you, 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 but those, those guys on Philadelphia, they wanted to kill me. <laughs> he says, that was scary. They had that legion of doom and they were trying to kill me. And I said, yeah, well, I said, it, you know, it worked out for both of us, I think. And this is what I want to say about that trade is that at the time that we traded Sergey in, 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 the, in the lockout uh, year or, or just shortly after the lockout year, I think it was, we needed an old Samuelson type of player. We needed a guy on defense that was his style 
player. And, and again, in fairness, and again, to defend myself on this, I did get a Hall of Fame player in Luke Robitaille. No, did he perform for us the way he had for others, like for that example for LA Kings, obviously, and even for Pittsburgh? No, he didn't play well for us, as well as he did in those circumstances. But my gosh, he was a, he's a sure Hall of Fame player, and I got him in that trade. So I don't think that was the bad trade. The trade that I want to pick myself in the teeth for all the time is when I made the trade in, I think it was 96, I believe, when I traded Ian LaPerriere, Ray Ferraro, Matthias Nordstrom for Marty McStorley and Gary Curry. That was a god-awful trade. Like, just turned out terrible. It was, and, and Matthias Nordstrom goes on to be the captain of LA for a long time. Ian LaPerriere ended up being what I thought he was, which is a good, hard-nosed player for a long time in the league. It was one of those deadline deals that you thought you had a chance to win and the players were saying to me the influential players that we weren't tough enough that we should try to get Marty and I knew that Yeri Curry would be a guy that Coley would love because he likes that kind of perfect defensive player but it just didn't work out and I, I lost the guy in Matthias Nordstrom and Ian LaPerriere those two guys could have played for us for years that's the one I that I regret. Neil, let's go back to the summer of 93 going into that season. You feel like you have a lot of your players in place. You have Mesge, but let's talk coaching. What was the thought process when you thought Mike Keenan, and Mike Keenan had just finished going to the finals in Chicago. So obviously it appeared like he knew what he was doing, but why did you think Mike Keenan would be the coach to help you win the Stanley Cup? Well, that's a good question, Ron. And and the way that turned out was we had Roger Nielsen at the beginning of the uh, 92-93 season. He was there in his third third or fourth year and um, he wasn't getting the message through and there was a little bit of a revolt uh, in the in the locker room about who you know the style of play we were playing and that and so uh, it came to mid-season and we were we were slipping out of the playoffs and I, I knew that some change had to be made at the same time in the minors Binghamton was going on a record setting pace and so Ron Smith was coaching there so I thought you know I, I better I have to do something here to try to uh, save the season and so I, I relieved Roger and brought up Ron Smith well Ron Smith couldn't get the team going either couldn't get the get them to, to produce the way that we felt they should and, and we had on this team a, a litany of stars already in the 92-93 season including Leach. Richter and Messier and, and Graves and, and Gartner and so on. So I said to our ownership group, uh, it was uh, Bob Gutkowski and, and Stanley Jaffe, I said, you know, we need one of three coaches. We need either Al Arbor, Scotty Bowman, or Mike Keenan. Those are the three sort of winningest commanding uh, commanders in the, you know, around Hawk. And uh, Al Arbor was coaching the Islanders and he wasn't going to come to the to the Rangers. Scotty Bowman was coaching in Pittsburgh. And um, the only one available was Mike Keenan because he'd been fired as the general manager of Chicago. Now, Mike Keenan went to the final in 1992, not not 92-93. He went in there in 92. And then after the 92 final, he became, he, he had Daryl Sutter coach and he was, the, he was the GM of Chicago. So he was let go by Chicago and then we ended up hiring him. And, and the reason was, is that like, I, I just saw Keenan coach Team Canada's to victory. I saw him coach, uh, you know, the, uh, in Philly, he had a lot of success earlier in his career. And he was a taskmaster. And it, I felt like we had a group that needed to be thrown off balance all the time by some kind of taskmaster. 
Well, you know, and that's the way Al Arbor ran his teams. That's the way Scotty Bowman ran his teams. Keenan, so I just had that feeling in my gut that, you know, this is what the players needed. I knew it wasn't going to be easy for me because anybody that worked with Keenan has, all, has always said it isn't easy, wasn't easy for them. So I, I knew that that wasn't going to be easy, but we needed that ingredient. Just like you need the Tickenins or the Bookabooms or the whoever else, you, you need a certain ingredient in that coaching role uh, to make things work. If you're starting your team new, there's no better guy than Roger Nielsen to get a team to overachieve. But if you've got a team that's poised to win in that era, not today, in that era, Mike Keenan, Pat Byrne, people like this were in the league coaching that had the reputation of being able to propel a, a, a talented group to a championship. Let's go through 93-94. You finish, uh, you win the President's uh, Trophy. 112 points, but the Devils are right there with you. 106 points, a big-time team, obviously. But you go into the playoffs with, obviously, the cup to win, but everything to lose. You're expected to win. A couple of years earlier, you're sort of expected to win and, and have the you know the game in, in, in Pittsburgh and Braves and you. But anyway, it's 94. You have to win. You, you have to win. And yet, here you are going in game six. Uh, Bulls are up 3-2. They, they've outplayed you decidedly in, in the last two games. And I'm wondering, it is, say, 15 minutes into the second period of that game. The Devils are winning 2-0. They're dominating. The only reason it's not six nothing is because of Mike Richter. What are you thinking at that point? Well, I'm not thinking good things, that's for sure. And um, I, I was in the, uh, as you know, Larry, we had the lower press box right uh, in the, at the Meadowlands, and uh, so you're basically sitting in with the fans. And uh, there was a guy who kept on during the second period screaming at me like, "Back to the drawing board! Back to the drawing board!" Like this, you know, because we'd made all those trades that year and we were the high profile team. And I, I get it because, Ron, when, when I was with the Islanders and you were with the Rangers, like I hated the Rangers because they could, you know, they got all the attention and we got nothing and we were winning and they weren't even winning. That was you guys. So I get it, but it's still, you know, your blood is bubbling as you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, like, please, God, don't let this all go down the drain after this great season. And I want to add, too, that the Devils, the only reason the Devils didn't win the President's Trophy and we did was because. Because I think we played them that year, Larry, something like seven times because we played them neutral site games as well. And I think we were like six and one against them. Or so. That's probably statistically not right, but close to that. And so that gave us the edge over them in points because basically on head to head, we beat them so many times. So they, that's how good they were. They were as good as us. Like, I, I, don't, I think I, they didn't have all the stars that we had, but they had, were as good a team as us. So, yeah, during that game, I was frightened. I mean, I thought that it was I thought that it was going down. And then when Kovalev scored uh, to make it two to one, and you, you see the building erupt for us, then you're thinking, okay, there's hope. I mean, it's only two to one. No matter how we played, it's only two to one as we go into the third period. So that's basically where I was sitting. And, and the funny part about that story about the fan is when Mess scored the empty net goal, I turned around to look at that guy, and there was only an empty seat there. He was gone. <laughs> hey, one more, Neil, from Twitter from at Kevin of Essex. Uh, you answered a lot of the questions in your first answer. Um, again, on the trade front, he said Zuboff, Gardner, Waite, Monty Moore, All-Stars, Hall of Famers traded. Do you think the Rangers would have won more cups if you kept those players? He also said, we're forever grateful for the 94 team. Thank you. You know, I've been asked that question about 
about the Lindros trade a lot. Like, had you got Lindros, would you have won more than one? And and my answer has always been, I'm not sure that we would have won one. Like, I could have kept all the guys, like, wait for Tikkanen at a time when Tikkanen was a very important player and Dougie Waite was a young player that wasn't as important. He became great as his career went on. But, you know... <sighs> Tony, I hated the Tony Amonte trade for Matto and Noon, and Larry knows that. I hated that trade because that went against everything I was. That was trading a young player with a great future for two players that were just average players but could fit into what we needed at that time. And if we hadn't won the Cup, I, I think I would have strung myself up for that trade. Nobody would have had to do it. The, the, the point is, is that to win that one Cup, you had to do whatever it was you took. You've got to put yourself back in the, in, in the, the 94, back in that 54 four years and and every year it was like another year of torture that here we go again and so the impression that I had from the city and from the fans and certainly from the owners and from the media and everybody is please just get us one I would have loved to have been a dynasty like the Islanders or even like Pittsburgh won two in a row or win two in three years or something like that but my answer to what the what ifs are just that I'm not sure we would have won the one had I not done it exactly the way that I did it. I can't question it. And I tried to warn everybody for years and years that we're going to pay a price for that 94 cup because you can't trade away Tony Amonti, Doug Waite, on and on, and then think that you're still going to be real good when the future comes and those guys aren't there. Your future isn't there anymore. You're going to, you know, you're going to have an older team and those older players were the first players to gain access to free agency and they're the first ones to, to you know, so then you have, you've got that problem because some of them want to leave like Pat Verbeek left right away or other players got offers. Anderson and, and Newton were gone immediately after the cup. McTavish left immediately after the cup and went to Philadelphia. So I would have loved nothing more than to done it the way Detroit did it. They won four Stanley Cups and they, they never, you know, they just stayed the course and stayed the course. But in that time and place, that wasn't working in New York. Two parts to my question. Uh, this past year, the celebration, 25-year anniversary of winning the Stanley Cup. Everyone gathers to New York. You come to New York. Uh, two parts of my question. What was that like for you? And also, there are people that who really like what you did. They feel like you've been unappreciated for you being the architect of this team. So what was it like and do you feel unappreciated? Well, first of all, that was the classiest thing I've ever been to. The way the Rangers and the Garden treated us and, and the way they handled that. And I mean, it could I, I can't imagine it being better than it was. It was so well done. It, I, it was, I mean, for me, I'm so appreciative to to the ownership and to the uh, to the garden and to the rangers and everybody involved that we had that opportunity to do that it was that was something um that's one of the highlights of my life that 25th anniversary celebration uh, as much as uh, a lot uh, you know anything could be that that was a tremendous honor to get that and, and you know it's 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 it shouldn't be take ever something like that be taken for granted when people do something like that for you you know i don't feel um unappreciated by the fans in new york i, I don't feel unappreciated by the media in New York or the, my friends in New York or all the all the people that I love there um, I've never felt that I, I think that there's been a, a perhaps a, a different way of handling the past than the way I handled it uh, when I was there because uh, I really embraced people like John Ferguson who had been a general manager of the Rangers and I went to Freddie Shiro's funeral and I really embraced uh, uh, Emil Francis of course who was an iconic guy uh, uh, and Craig Patrick's a, a good friend of mine 
Phil Esposito. We became friends later on after, uh, you know, it took a year or so because uh, obviously, but when he was with Tampa and that, uh, we were always friends. And I, I tried to bring back people at the appropriate time uh, to honor uh, players maybe that they had drafted, like Phil had drafted Leach and Craig had drafted Richter. And I always made mention of that, that I didn't draft those guys. It was, it was those two guys that did it. So I, I think that there's different ways of handling your history and, and uh, handling um, uh, how you uh, honor your history. You know, I, I guess uh, I never per- thought that when they finally did win the cup, uh, that they would not handle it in the future the way that you know, you, you would have done it yourself and, and the way that maybe they do it in Montreal or do it in other places. But, you know, you just have to uh, appreciate what you get given and, and, and not worry about what you're not given, I guess. Uh, that's what I would have to say about that. Can we revisit 96-97 for a minute? Um, you and I talked a lot that year. You signed Wayne. And, and this was a question I had all year. So I'll, I'll, I'll ask you again. Why didn't you go all in? when you had him. Brendan Shanahan's available. I, I know you made an offer, but um, there was. It, it seemed to me that there was always a reluctance to give up a little bit too much for a guy who might have come in and been able to win you another one that year with a team that really, you know, was the last chance. Uh, Richter was playing well. Leach was playing well. I mean, you had, you know, Adam was fine. You had your guys and you had Wayne. And so I was all, you know, it was, I mean, I wrote it a number of times that year. And so I'll come back to it again. Do you think, you know, in retrospect, that maybe you should have gone all in that year? In retrospect, now I do. Yeah, because the the point is, is that when I tell you my reasons for not going all in, it didn't do me any good. My reasons were not, uh, didn't didn't work. And what I mean by that is, uh, and you got to look at the whole picture, Larry, uh, and and, and I, I know you do. But you, you have to look at everything, okay? The coach at that point was Colin Campbell. Coley really <laughs> was not a big fan of me signing Wayne. Like, that really wasn't what he was looking to do. You remember the type of coach he was. He wasn't a coach that liked to have big superstars all over the place doing whatever they wanted to do and not really regimented at all. But I wanted Wayne badly because he was he was basically a, a hero of mine. Like I, I thought he was fantastic. I couldn't believe that I might get the opportunity to put him in a Ranger uniform. And, and so and, and we were also really hurting at center, like to be honest with you back then, if you look back at the lineup. But I had already told uh, the ownership and, and the group of above me that, you know, we're going to have to rebuild this thing because we're old. We're not young. I mean, we had Pat Flatley on the team that year. We had, you know, uh, other people that I just saw their, their game going down. Wayne was fantastic that year, that 96-90. Unbelievable. You know, I just thought that I got to hang on and do what I thought was the right thing, which was get back to exactly what you talked about earlier in this call, which was being the talent evaluator and the drafting, do good drafting, do good development, and now build something that'll last for a while now that we've had our one shot we got to start to build something or else you know this whole thing's going to fall apart on us and that's where I that's where I was I was trying to grip my teeth and hold tight to try to build something looking back had I gone all in and had another even older team then because as you would have had to give up young people to get more players to play at that level you know I, sh- I probably should have done that because I didn't get rewarded for I didn't get re- I guess rewarded it's not the right word but I didn't get nobody appreciated the fact that I was trying to do what's best for the franchise in the long run and and that's really where my mind was it, it you could be said now that well I was wrong and and I'll take that but at that time 
that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to see a long-term picture and not a short-term picture. I probably didn't think at that time, and I can't tell you for sure because it's, what is it, 23 years ago? I probably didn't think that we had a Stanley Cup level team, even if we added somebody. But you know what? Seeing now and in hindsight, knowing where that team went to, uh, we went to the semifinal and had a lot of injuries and got knocked out by Philly. And then Philly goes out four straight to Detroit. We probably would have done better than Philly did with Detroit. You couldn't have done worse. But to be honest with you, that, that's my honest answer is that I was just trying to hold on tight for the future and not throw away what little youth we had to try to to try to get it again my last question to you because i know you're still very close to the game you watch the game you've been an analyst for the nhl channel uh, when you're thinking about today's manager and today's game do you see it differently like if you were to manage now do you see it differently is their job differently now than it used to be when you were manager yeah i think it's drastically different um i i I think that today's managers have to take so much more into consideration than we did. Uh, I think uh, when I was the GM, they were still, um, if you made a trade, uh, it was the old Sam Pollock adage that the, the team that ended up with the best player won the trade. And so today it's not like that because we see a lot of good players traded on a lopsided trade and it's always about the cap or financial issues and so the manager has to disregard his own uh, his own his own credibility or his own hockey credibility because of the financial because of the cap so you trade um, player x for player y and everybody goes oh what a lopsided trade that was yeah well it's all because they needed to get them the, you know out from under the, the cap chicago made a several of them right like you know giving away I shouldn't say giving away, but trading guys like Bufflin and trading guys like um, Panarin and and so on to, because of the salary issues that they had. So I think that that's drastically different. I, I think the players play differently now, obviously, so that there has to be a different dynamic in how you think about team chemistry and how you think about what kind of how you're going to build your team. Uh, uh, it's all, as you guys well know, it's all speed and skill now. And it's not like, you know, I got to make sure that we're tough enough. So I got Joey Koser. Now I know we're tough enough. I got Ty Domi. Now I know we're tough enough. Now let's move on to, do we have a good checking line? You know, who, <laughs> let's let's make sure we have a good checking line. And then we need two or three real good scorers up front. And of course, you need a great goaltender. It was, it, it was more like that than it is today with the, um, you know, with how, what players come along and that. And also, uh, Ronnie, players are coming from all over the world now and all over the United States and, and of course, Canada. And so you have to have a lot bigger picture and you can't, um, it's not so easy to say things. For example, in the 90s and the 80s, you were saying things like, well, he's an American, you know, or, oh, he's a Swede, or, oh, he's a Russian, or, oh, he's this, or he's that. I mean, now you get a kid like Jason Zucker that plays in Pittsburgh who's from Las Vegas. I mean, who in our time ever thought you'd get a player that grew up in Las Vegas? So I think I think things have really changed. I'm not saying it's a tougher job now. It's just a different job. The thing that I'm jealous of um, from today's managers is I think it's a more secure job, believe it or not, than it was in my day because there's so much, there's so it's so hard to evaluate the job that the manager's done when you take into consideration the cap and the financial stuff and all that. It's not just simply did he draft well or didn't he draft well. It's also, you know, there's also all these other pieces to it. And there's all the uh, stuff about uh, the, di the dynamics of the game, the, the numbers, the stats that are used now that weren't used in those days. So 
it's it's more complicated like the rest of the world, but uh, it's, I'm sure it's still a fulfilling thing if you're uh, the guy that ends up uh, skating off the ice with a victory at the end of the season. And that, of course, is the guy that wins the cup. Well, Neil, we're going to end it with that, the cup, 94. We really appreciate your insight and going back to 94 and, and the making of 94. And uh, I know from uh, people I know, they've greatly appreciated uh, what you've done. And the Rangers are still waiting for another Stanley Cup. But until then, we're going to still love the Rangers. And uh, we uh, wish you the best. And thank you very much for your time. Anytime, Ronnie. Thanks for having me. And uh, Larry, thank- nice talking to you. for episode 20 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for producing the show. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen. If you're using Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars and write a nice review, please. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at RonDuGay10. Thanks for joining us. Stay inside, stay safe. Chat with you all next week.